John Gregg picks a running mate. What does Christina Hale bring to the ticket? Andre Carson battles Islamophobia. David Orentlicker gets a recount. And President Obama plans a trip to Elkhart. That plus an Indy 500 sellout, our annual race picks, and more on Indiana Week in Review for the week ending May 27, 2016. Programming is made possible by Ice Miller. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com. This week, Democrat John Gregg picked State Representative Christina Hale to be his running mate in the race for governor. Hale is in her second term representing a district on the northeast side of Indianapolis, and she's ambitious. She considered becoming a candidate for the U.S. Senate this year. She is a former communications director for Kiwanis International and can also be expected to help John Gregg win votes in Marion County. That's a potential key to victory for the Democratic candidate. In Representative Hale, I have found a full partner who is not only ready to govern, but who has the experience and the passion, the desire to help me refocus Indiana state government on the things that really matter to Hoosiers. I've always learned that no matter what happens in life, you have to keep moving forward. And I've learned the value of hard work. I bring this up because that's what Hoosiers need to do. And when Indiana elects John Gregg for our next gov governor, we're going to double down and get to work. Did John Gregg make the right choice? It's the first question for our Indiana Week in Review panel, Democrat and Delaney, Republican Mike McDaniel. John Schwannis, the host of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger, president of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. I'm Wish TV Statehouse reporter Jim Schella. Mike McDaniel, was John Gregg required to pick a woman? No, I don't think he was, but I think it's a good, solid pick for John Gregg. I've, I think Christina Hale has, has been a very good legislator, works hard, uh, always does her homework. Uh, the only thing, the only downside I can see is she has no experience doing any kind of a statewide campaign like this, but she'll work hard. She'll overcome that. Uh, so, you know, I can see uh, her, her opportunities ahead she could be the candidate for governor in 2020 when the open seat's up again. <laughs> Dream on. Seriously. We, interesting uh, reaction from Mike. I think the, the governor uh, welcomed her to the race, congratulated oh, her on her pick. I, I mean, the, the reaction from, from Republicans and Democrats has been positive. Oh, of course. I mean, she's been an outstanding legislator. Uh, you know, and what could the governor say? He forced his woman lieutenant governor out so he could have a, uh, an echo chamber in there. I mean, she brings all kinds of things to it. She's been an, an outspoken and, and very effective advocate on women's issues. Um, she brings youth. She brings a concern about the environment and education. She brings geographic diversity, having been raised in the region and now lives in Marion County. She comes from a Cuban-American family. Um, she brings all kinds of things, it seems to me, to the ticket to complement him 
and yet she is not the echo chamber that, that Mike Pence surrounds himself with. So I think she's going to be a very potent force in energizing uh, women in this election. In her opening speech, she talked about how she was a single mother at the age of 19 and uh, still paid her own way through college and, and came to, to where she is today. Um, was, was that an inoculation? Oh, well, that's an interesting question. I wouldn't have put it that way or thought of it that way. Uh, I don't think if, if it was intended as an inoculation. I think it's more intended as a, as a powerful narrative uh, and uh, a good story. I mean, it's somebody who's overcome obstacles and, and done it in a way that's uh, on its face uh, well done and admirable. Uh, if it's an inoculation, then that means this race is going to be even nastier than I thought, and I hate to think about that. I don't think that's the case. If this were the 1956 uh, gubernatorial campaign, maybe it would have been seen as a, a necessary inoculation. But I, I think, as has been suggested, it's a point of pride that uh, it shows that she had what it took to overcome um, challenges that might have derailed other people uh, at that age, but to not only pay for college, as you suggested mm -hmm. in your open, and, and uh, raise, her son. raise her son and become a successful business person and lawmaker. That's, that's and, part of a pretty attractive narrative. I think it's narrative. also important to, to note that she has both the endorsement of the AFL-CIO and the Chamber which of is, Commerce. Which is a rarity. Well, which is rare. Tell, tell me if I'm thinking too hard here. Uh, because yes. Yes. Well, I knew you'd say that. But I thought it was interesting. Usually at announcements like this, you have lots of signs and cards that say, Greg Hale, and everything there said John Greg. Is, is, is this race all about him? You're thinking, I think too, you're hard. thinking too hard. So here's it will be all about it. Let's let's be yeah, honest it, about yeah. this. It will be all about it's all him. About the, governor. the commercials will be about the two candidates for governor. It's not going to be about the lieutenant governor candidates. Lieutenant governor candidates, what you hope for is they want to embarrass you, and you hope they help you somehow. And I think in both cases they have candidates who aren't going to embarrass them and will help them. But it's, it all boils down to the two candidates for governor. I mean, her name ID. Is probably three to five percent statewide, and Holcomb's is. is probably maybe eighteen to twenty percent statewide because he's been involved in statewide races and been state chairman. But other than that, I mean, that's you know, yeah. uh, so it's going to be about the two candidates for governor. But you know, yeah, I think I think Mike's point is well made. But you were talking about the signs. Well, this is the social media age, and so the best hashtags I saw post yes. uh, announcement were hashtag hire Greg, hashtag hail yes. So I thought that was a nice combination, and it works in the social realm. There you go. And All besides right. which, it doesn't cost. <laughs> yeah, the other thing that surprised me about this was that picking somebody from Marion County, you know, Marion County is, would be considered a Democrat county right now, and I didn't but think it's the biggest, needed, it's the biggest concentration of Democrats help also, here. But you yeah. got you. But got, if they're saying about it, it's going to help her help him in Marion County. I don't. I don't get what that gets for you. Carry, he'll carry Marion County. But if you energize the vote, those extra votes that she yeah. brings in seems to me count statewide. And, and even though I think and they will in Hamilton as well. I agree with what everybody has said about the top of the ticket being the high profile element uh, that voters will obviously recognize and will be promoted on a statewide basis. But she will help with certain constituencies. Right with with uh, women and with younger women and in those settings where you have a particular special interest group that maybe has a particular concern about the agenda uh, the Pence administration has advocated in the past I wouldn't be surprised if somebody goes and makes some signs that say hail and then 
Well, or maybe a retire not, Maybe not Greg under it. Fire pants or, pants or fell pants. Her name will be on those, those signs. Time now for viewer feedback. Each week we pose an unscientific online poll question in conjunction with our Ice Miller email and text alerts. This week's question, what does Christina Hale's selection as John Gregg's running mate mean to you? Your choices are A, I'm more likely to vote for Gregg, B, I'm less likely to vote for Gregg, or C, no difference. Last week's question, who should determine school bathroom policies? 57% said the federal government, 10% said the state government, 33% said school boards. If you'd like to take part in the poll, go to WFYI.org slash IWIR and look for the poll. Congressman Andre Carson says he doesn't see himself as a spokesman for all Muslims, but at the same time he says he is happy to speak up about problems faced by the 8 million Muslims in America. And that's why he joined with Congressman Keith Ellison at the National Press Club in Washington this week to denounce Islamophobia and take questions from the media. They are concerned about rhetoric in the race for president and in particular comments made by Donald Trump. The presumptive Republican nominee has called for a ban on Muslim travel into the U.S. and at one point said, quote, I think Islam hates us. Here's Carson followed by Ellison. Here's a guy who's a great showman, who's a P.T. Barnum, but who will not stop at anything in order to garner attention to leverage it to his favor. It is incomplete to just say he's appealing to people's bigotry. It's incomplete. What he's really doing is appealing to people's tribalism. And he's defining the tribe as white working class people. And he's saying, if you're in that group, you're us. And if you're not, you're out. And Eleni, do they have political motives? You know, I think they have legitimate concerns about the bigotry that's being stirred up on the presidential side by the Republican Party. And it's, it's across the board. I mean, you, had, you have the, the comments by Trump, uh, which, which, equate, which, which equate Muslims with ISIS. You have uh, a, a proposed ban on Muslim travel to this country. You have uh, Ben Carson, who a former candidate for, for president, who is now vetting the vice presidential candidate, who said a Muslim is not fit to be president of the United States. That is bigotry. It's not subtle. It is absolutely the America first bigotry that started, uh, you know, world wars before. And I think it's frightening. And if I were a Muslim in this country, I would be frightened. And I think they're very right to speak out. It's well, unacceptable. They are the two Muslim members of, of Congress. There was a circumstance in, in Texas here in the last week or so where there was were efforts to remove a Republican Muslim from a committee because of his religion. I mean, there are problems uh, here that are coming to well, light. I think, I think what you've got going here is that, that, that Trump in particular has tapped into this whole fear of what's going on there nationally. I think there's, uh, I think a lot of Americans are frustrated that the federal government is not doing more to protect us. I think that there's a lot of fear that uh, they are not doing enough to move fast enough to eliminate some problems. And the Unfortunately for the Muslim community, so much of the media has centered on radicalized Muslims that uh, that's a problem. And I think they've tapped into that fear. And, uh, you know, there are a lot of people that wouldn't admit to you publicly that the idea that you ban Muslim travel in the U.S. is not the right thing to do. There are a lot of people privately who would say, if it's going to make us safer, I don't care. 
and there's oh, a lot of wow. that. Believe me, there's a lot of that out there. I mean, oh, wow. I'm telling you, um, there's a lot of it. Okay. There's about. a lot of people who don't believe in the Bill of Rights. Should we no, repeal I'm, that, I'm, too? Dan, I'm just telling you, there's a lot of people that feel very strongly oh, so, so appealing to that's okay, then? No, but uh, I'm just telling you well, that's what's going Keith on Ellison here. And, and Andre Carson pointed out at this news conference, there's some practical challenges. Even, Mike, uh, I'm not saying you adhere to this philosophy, but even those who say let's do these patrols, for instance, as was suggested during the campaign in Muslim areas and so forth, as uh, I believe as Keith Ellison pointed out, 1,000 members of the New York City Police Department are, are Muslim. Muslim. Yeah, so I don't, I don't know how you and, enforce that and, stuff. And, and, and also, been... you talk, Jim, you talked about committee yeah. assignments and the, the possible removal or the... Uh, we should note that um, Andre Carson is actually a On member the of the Intelligence Committee, uh, right. committee and has worked with Homeland right. Security. So I'm sure there are people who view that maybe with discomfort, but uh, maybe that's why this news conference uh, served a good purpose. Well, one of the things they did at this news conference was was try to energize Muslims. They, they, they said that one of the problems is they don't have political leverage, and, and they're trying to encourage others uh, to get involved politically. So, Well, no one has political leverage if they don't exercise that leverage, and that is their right to vote. So to the extent that anyone tries to get more people to the ballot box is a good thing. But I think really what they're trying to do is counteract that poisonous atmosphere that Mike described. Because I don't, I, disagree, I don't disagree with you, Mike. I think a lot of people in their heart of hearts think that. And that's terrible. Because the country is not founded on that kind of fear. The country is founded on the confidence of your rights to be the person you are in the way that you should be and feel is the right thing to do. So this, this, they're trying to counter the poisonous atmosphere that's in existence right now and being perpetrated by others on a national and, scale. And, and Trump is one of the leaders on this because he's the one that keeps saying that, you know, first of all, obviously Barack Obama can't be an American. He can't, he, the birth he was part issue. of the birther movement. And he also said that if you looked at his birth certificate, you'd see he was Muslim. Again, somehow that's pejorative in, in, my, in uh, Donald Trump's mind. It, it, is, it is frightening that that kind of rhetoric is being pursued on a national scale by a Republican candidate for president. It really is frightening. We should point out, though, that Keith, I believe it was Keith Ellison who said at the same news conference, you talk about rhetoric, uh, there was, it wasn't all decorum and, and yeah. uh, niceties. I mean, he did liken, he said if a, uh, a Muslim voting for Donald Trump would be like a chicken voting for Colonel Sanders. Uh, and what's so, the, is that not accurate? Uh, it seems a little bit uh, <laughs> you uh, think so? overwrought. I mean, He'd deport just, them if you, he could. Yeah, but you just talked about how it, the rhetoric and... That's uh, different from saying that you're not qualified virtu by virtue of your religion or that you should be barred from entering the country. There's just other ways to country. say it, probably, right, if, moving if you're on. talking about decorum. A recount was ordered this week in the Democratic primary in the 8th Congressional District. Former State Representative David Orentlicker is behind by 68 votes, according to the count from election night. The State Recount Commission approved his request to have the votes counted again. Ron Drake is in the lead, and he made an unsuccessful request to the commission to drop the matter, even though he says he expects the recount won't change things. John Ketzenberger, is David Orentlicker a sore loser? <laughs> well, no, I don't think he's a sore loser, but he is putting the party behind the eight ball on this because it's 19 counties, uh, it's 68 votes, which is a wide margin in a recount situation. And so it's going to take all summer to get this thing done. Uh, even if he prevails, they're going to have a difficult, neither one of them will be able to raise any money in their, in their respective campaigns. And they already had a tough battle against the incumbent Larry Bouchon to begin with. So a recount doesn't do either one of them any good, and certainly not the Democrat Party. And 
it's it's the, the commission voted for it because he meets the standards in the statute for for a, a recount. The difference is less than one percent of the the amount of one votes cast. One thousandth of one percent is the difference. Yeah, um, but sixty-eight is a lot to overcome in a in an electronic voting age. Uh, it probably is. I mean, we have we can all find precedent where people have overcome those kinds of votes. But you're right, that was not in this era. Those were when you were people were going into machines and pulling levers and people were going to the back of machines and writing down numbers and then carrying those numbers. Having said that, the, the real, uh, you don't want to write off any race is, is decided, but I mean, once this, is, this shakes out and, it, and the, either the original count is confirmed or in fact David Warrantlicker is declared the winner, to what end? I mean, that's. It, I think you'd have to say, uh, based on the district, the makeup of the district, and the, the voter composition, and and voting patterns, that that it would be. I think John used a good phrase: uphill battle. Uh, oh, yeah. That's, that's well, pretty clear. The point is, Larry Bouchon has got to be the happiest guy. Uh, well, watching he's this, right? a, he's a very popular member of Congress. He's been elected and reelected twice by bigger and bigger margins each time, and. You know, watching these folks fight over this, I mean, it's like two dogs fighting over a bone with no meat on it. I mean, it's, why are they doing this? And spending the money, $7,000 or whatever it is for the recount. But what John said is absolutely right. The longer it takes, the less likely people are going to want to put money into this campaign for the Democrats because they're going to say you have no chance. And uh, so I'm, I'm scratching my head on this and why they're doing it, but I'm glad they are. What's the party thing? Well, I mean, when you have a margin that's one thousandth of one percent, you know, it seems to me you want to get it right. Uh, and that's what he's asking, to make sure it is gotten right. And, you know, hopefully they'll do it a lot more quickly than you think, John, however. Yeah. Barack so? Obama is coming back to Elkhart next week. The president believes that Elkhart is a good example of the economic recovery that has taken place since he took office. He first came to Elkhart just three weeks after he became president. That trip was meant to highlight the effects of the recession. The unemployment rate in Elkhart at the time was almost 20%. That was almost double the national average. He came back to Elkhart County six months later to visit a bankrupt RV factory. It was being turned into a factory for electric cars with the help of federal stimulus money. Now he's coming to highlight an unemployment rate of just over 4%. That's lower than the national average. Here's White House Press Secretary Josh Earnest. Is Elkhart the best example of economic recovery in the country? Well, Jim, when you consider the statistics, it's hard to think of a better example. So our Republican governor is running for re-election now, and he's running ads where he's taking credit for the economic recovery here. Does he deserve some of it? Well, listen, Jim, I, I, I'm not surprised to hear that there are a lot of politicians that are eager to take credit for what's happened. The truth is the president's been clear from the beginning that the private sector, uh, our workers uh, and business owners, are the ones who deserve the credit. And that success was uh, strengthened by the policies that this president implemented. John Schwannis, who deserves the most credit for the manufacturing resurgence in Indiana? Well, I think I don't have a problem with, with uh, the president going and, and beating his chest and claiming victory over it because it was in dire straits because of the manufactured housing industry and how that market, that industry had effectively imploded uh, during the recession. So I can't blame him for that. But the fact of the matter is, I'm not sure any one individual in our global economy can either be blamed uh, for a big downturn or credited for a big comeback. It's just, it's too complex. And anybody who thinks that anybody can uh, 
you know, just snap his or her fingers and say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do that. You're talking about factors that are beyond any, any one individual and probably beyond any one country. But for Barack Obama, the facts stack up pretty nicely here, and he's trying to establish a legacy. Well, yes, and, you know, that's understandable. I think John's assessment is right. The, the president has plenty to, uh, to tout and a, and a record to show. But the same is true of the governor in that regard. So, you know, it works on both levels, and I think that also goes to the point that needs to be made that's very important, and that is um, that there are policies that can screw things up in a hurry, um, but on the national level, on the local level, uh, it is very hard to affect the economy. Um, you can screw it up, but you can't make it great in a hurry by policymaking. Well, you know, you, but um, even if this is coincidental, even if it's accidental, the fact that this was the first city that he visited as president and it was double uh, the unemployment rate and now it's lower. And, and, and the stimulus package that he advocated and that the governor voted against and the auto bailout that he advocated that the governor voted against are two of the factors that have contributed to this. So you're right, it's a global economy, but the stimulus package worked, and it worked for Elkhart, and he deserves credit for that. And in addition to that, a lot of the workers who were laid off now have health insurance as a result of Obamacare, which the governor finally adopted. So that, that's, those are good things for Elkhart. They're good things, uh, and he deserves yeah. a lot of credit for it. You can't <laughs> say it's just the state economy here, because the, because the RV industry in particular is a national kind of a uh, of a business and and the business when he was when he took office we were hemorrhaging 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 thank you Uh, 750,000 jobs a month and now we've had what 21 consecutive months of job growth Mike I love this one because one RVs started going the RV industry started going down when gas prices went through the ceiling okay once gas, once gas yes. prices got so high that America started producing oil, gas prices started to come down again, which made it possible for people to buy RVs and to travel in RVs again. So the biggest influence on in this was the fact that we started mining, or going for oil in America. Second, the, the Indian Department of Economic Development invested some 61 companies up there, $407 million of investment. Okay, the company that Obama put money into for the electric cars is now in Chicago. It's not even in Indiana. So I love this one. Yeah. Obama's like yeah. the, the the turtle somebody put on the top of fence post, but he thinks he got there by himself. Yeah, but, yeah, but saying, the money that came from the yeah. economic development yeah, the stimulus came from money, the federal stimulus, stimulus money. money that money's Mitch in Chicago. Daniels, it's not even Mitch, in Indiana. Mitch Daniels used the federal so he's stimulus come back and say, just Mitch Daniels used the federal just, John, stimulus quickly, money. Just point out that in fairness, the, the oil and gas industry, in, the domestic industry, has grown and expanded far greater under the Obama administration right, than, than prior Republicans. Republicans. Only because yeah, of the international yeah. yeah. The Indianapolis Motor Speedway announced this week that the 100th running of the Indy 500 is officially sold out. It's the very first sellout of the Indy 500 ever. About 250,000 people are expected to fill the stands and maybe 150,000 more will be in the infield. And because no more tickets are available, the TV blackout is lifted. The race will be broadcast live in Indianapolis for the first time since 1950. Speedway President Doug Bowles.
we're just really excited about the enthusiasm and the support that not only Indianapolis, but the entire state of Indiana has given the Indianapolis Motor Speedway as, as we've gone forward. This is much more, I think, than any of us had ever expected when we started this march uh, last year, about a year from today, when we unveiled the logo. Mike McDaniel, did taxpayer contributions to the improvements at the Speedway play a factor in this decision? I don't think so. First of all, there were loans, not contributions. Uh, and uh, they are to be paid back in full and are being paid back in full. So I don't think that's a factor. I think what is a factor, as Mark Miles said in the news conference, was the fact that their business model said you had to keep Central Indiana blocked out to have enough money come in the gate to make everything work because this race is what makes IndyCar go for the whole season. So uh, yeah, I think it's a good business decision. I think it's a great decision for the people of Central Indiana. The excitement over the 100th running is like nothing I've ever seen before, maybe since the Colts were in the Super Bowl. Well, in fact, I can tell you out at the airport, TSA is preparing for the second biggest day uh, on the day after, and the first biggest day was the day after the Super Bowl here. So, Mm -hmm. all right, Um, it's time now for our annual Indy 500 picks, and who will win the race? James Hinchcliffe. <laughs> James, James Hinchcliffe, well who is done. the best story of the year. He well, almost yeah, died almost in a crash died. last you don't year. Think Jen he's sitting on the pole. Or maybe Jerry <laughs> right. Stewart. Mike, <laughs> Mike, Mike who's going to win the race? Ryan Hunter Ray. Ryan, That's a good outside the front row. Will be American winner. Let's go Elio Castronavis. Uh, Penske. I have the Penske. Same, same team, different driver. I'm going to say Simon Pagano. Um... You know what? Simon Pagano has been the hottest driver. Why do you think I picked him? I, you He's going to win. Well, who's your choice? I like Elio Castro. Who Never was yours again? I like Roger Penske at Indianapolis. And I think Roger Penske is going to make a real effort for the 100. Yeah. Yeah. I think... Uh, it's going to be fun. That's Indiana Week in Review for this week. Our panel is Democrat Ann Delaney, Republican Mike McDaniel, John Schwanis of Indiana Lawmakers, and John Ketzenberger of the Indiana Fiscal Policy Institute. If you'd like a podcast of this program, you can find it at wfyi.org slash iwir, or starting Monday, you can stream it or get it on demand from Xfinity or Bright House Networks. I'm Jim Shello of Wish TV. We'll see you again next week. Programming is made possible by Ice Miller. Ice Miller, with a 100-year tradition of learning what is important to clients and strategizing with them toward a common goal. Today, Ice Miller continues its commitment to help clients build, grow, and protect their interests. More at icemiller.com.